Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 16. Give you a little reasoning behind why we're trying to push our podcast a little bit. That will actually cut down on the amount of CDs and hence the amount of work to do that. And also the amount of waste that ends up in landfills and those types of things. So we're trying to be a little bit conscientious there, how we can do these things digitally now. So if you have a smartphone, totally encourage you to just subscribe and then you can listen to whatever message you want. They'll be automatically updated uh, every single week. As we turn our attention to this particular passage, we're going to take a large chunk of scripture today. And you might notice we're going from chapter five into chapter six. And that's because I've shared with you before uh, the chapter and verse designations were not in the original manuscripts. And this happens to be one of those places where Jesus is speaking in a continuous way. Remember, he's ministering in Capernaum. Uh, He's there at Peter's mother-in-law's house. Uh, He's kind of held these meetings where he's healed a bunch of people. And now we're continuing to see uh, yet another part of that time where Jesus is authenticating his ministry. And he's now going to be confronted with a whole bunch of criticism. And guess where it's going to come from? Religion from the very people who should know better, from the people who ought to understand exactly what God's word says and apply it correctly, this is one of those areas where I think we can fall into traps as the church because we can become so heavenly minded that we become no earthly good. We actually can take the word of God and misapply it. We can begin to use it as a weapon. We can actually... Uh, really steal away sometimes the grace of God in doing so. And so I pray that you'll be moved to think how you think about the grace of God as we see Jesus facing this criticism here in part 12 of the Savior's saga. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Again, we just come. We're your kids. We're your children. And Lord, we like to be sitting in as you speak to these men whom are learned. They understand the law. But the law hasn't done much in their life. And they certainly aren't walking in your grace. And so Lord, as children of your grace, recipients of your mercy, pray that you'd speak to us through your word as we read it, help us to hear it, and to do what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 16 here in Luke chapter 5. And so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And now it happened on a certain day while he was teaching. Jesus continues to teach. He continues to preach. He continues to speak the good news of the gospel. Though he has not yet died for mankind's sin, he's setting the table so that people would understand that religion in and of itself can save no one. 
that sometimes religion is actually a hindrance to coming to faith, that religious duties can often become a substitute for devotion to God. And as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by. Now remember, there in Capernaum, he's just about 200 feet from the front door of the synagogue to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And so they're very nearby. They, they would have been within earshot. If you were speaking loudly, you could have heard the synagogue and you could have heard what was going on in Peter's mom's house. Who had come out of every town in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. This is a religious crowd. And in fact, Jesus is now drawing attention because of what's going on in his ministry there in the region of Galilee. And I want you to notice something that is placed in Scripture almost as a side note, but it's very important. And that's this little tiny statement. And so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Jesus is not just going from ministry thing to ministry thing to ministry thing to ministry thing, from one thing to another thing. He himself is taking time to get alone with God the Father. This is a picture of our devotional life. If you want to look at it this way, I, I am actually paid to professionally study the Word of God. I actually have to do that if you want to look at it that way as part of my job. And I'm saying that in a very specific way for a very specific reason. In other words, I need to study. That's something I need to do. I'd be hard-pressed to share with you truths I myself have not yet learned. Amen? But I want you to notice the difference here. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word. And he himself takes time to get alone with God the Father. This is a absolutely necessitated part of who we are as the church, as the children of God, as God's people, that we take time to get alone with God. Because it's there he ministers to us. He said, I can spend a lot of time just ministering to other people. And what happens in my own flesh, in my own existence, is I myself still need to be ministered to. There's not an infinite capacity in anyone who's human to just go from thing to thing to thing without the enemy getting into your life. And so take time to get alone with God. Spend that time in prayer, spend that time in the Word. Spend that time just getting refreshed. Go away on vacation. Spend some time away so that the Lord can minister to you and refresh you. If Jesus needed this, how much more do we need this? A couple of things that we see here in Jesus' life. Jesus was under very heavy pressure to perform. You're under very heavy pressure to perform. People are watching you. They're looking at you. They're seeing how you will handle your life. You've declared yourself to be a Christian, and they're looking to see what it is that's going to happen when trouble comes your way. When problems enter your life, what are you going to do with them? We see Jesus 
having demands placed on him. He needed the Father to help him with those things in his humanness, and you need the Lord to help you with your humanness as well. Besides this, I I think we have to look at this. It's just super critical what is going to happen next in Jesus's life. Now, Jesus being God knows what's going to happen because he's God. But in his humanness, he still needs to be prepared for what's going to happen. He's man and God. And he is 100% man and 100% God. Now, that may be hard for you to wrap your head around, but nonetheless, it is what Scripture teaches. And so as a man, he's going to endure the same things that you endure. When people attack him, it's not going to feel good. When his character is questioned, he, he is going to have thoughts that come in his humanness. Not as God, but in his humanness. It's like, oh, well, this is horrible. Jesus experienced pain. He experienced anguish. He went through every single emotion that you have ever experienced. And Jesus needed to be ready for that. It was going to be a rough day is another way to look at it. And Jesus prepared himself. Why is that important? Because there's no chances in God's plans. Brothers and sisters, there are no random chances in God's plans. We see things as random. We see things as accidental. We look at our life and we observe the things that go on in it, and we're tempted to think, well, that was just an accident. It was something bizarre. It was something random. You just happened to bump into that person while you're in Costco. There are no chances in God's plans. Everything is meticulously mapped out by God the Father. And so notice this scene. It's on a certain day. And the word certain there is indicating a precise day. A day that had been planned out. In other words, God knew that there would be this radical crowd of religious people from all over the region. Notice where they've come from. All of Judea. So when the priests were not on station, when they were not doing their duty in the temple, they lived in Jericho. That's in Judea. They came from Jerusalem. So there are likely members of the Sanhedrin. There are Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Every type of religious person you can imagine are undoubtedly in this crowd. They're the religious legalists. They're the people who teach that the Sabbath was so holy that any transgression of it would leave one outside of God's favor. Matter of fact, they would be the same ones that would echo what Nathaniel said there in the first chapter of John's gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's Jesus of Nazareth. He's preaching like no one's ever heard anyone preach. And the religious legalists are questioning what's going on. God knew this day would come. Notice it says that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. It's saying it was available. It was there. If they had wanted to hear the truth, the truth was available. 
But that isn't why they were there. Can I tell you that sometimes people listen online? Can I tell you that sometimes people listen to podcasts? Can I tell you that sometimes people come to church because they are looking for a reason to criticize us as a church and me personally? That is the only reason that they're listening. They haven't come to receive. They could if they wanted to. If they wanted to overlook my own personal weaknesses, my delivery, so to speak, and simply receive the truth of the word of God, they could receive that, but they're looking for something to criticize. That is what legalists always do. They are never happy. There's no good church. Every church falls short. Every pastor falls short. Every children's ministry worker falls short. Every assisting pastor falls short. Everyone falls short of the glory of them. They're professional critics. Jesus is running into some professional critics. He's going to upend the Sabbath of all things. So these people who write blogs, these people who hide behind the internet, these people who simply want to criticize have been around for a very long time. Don't listen to them. They're graceless. The only thing they ever see is problems. What kind of criticism would Jesus face? First, there's some silent criticism. Let's pick up in verse 18. And behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the midst of Jesus. And remember that they had primarily thatched roofs or mud roofs at that time. In this case, this appears to be a thatched roof. There's just simply some poles up there, and over them are grass and twigs and sticks. And you mainly use it to keep the sun off of you. And so they spread apart the grass and the sticks and dropped this man directly into the middle of this tiny little room. And when he saw their faith, and I love this, you might think, hey, man, you just messed up my roof. That's not what Jesus sees. Jesus sees our faith. He said to them, or they said to him, excuse me, he said to him. Notice what he says. First things first, amen? Man. So whenever you say, hey, man, Jesus did that. Your sins are forgiven you. And your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks? Check this out. This is how the legalist responds. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? They begin to pick it apart. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer is, bingo. <laughs> Correct. Survey says, son of God. Amen? They actually had it right. This is what religious people often do. 
They'll have the truth correct, and they will so misinterpret it that they actually miss the meaning of the truth. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Why are you judging me? Why are you going where you're going? Look, let me, let me talk to you for a minute, he says there in verse 23. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or say, rise up and walk? Which one's harder? But that you may know that the Son of Man, that was him, amen, he's already said that, has the power on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise and take up your bed and go to your house. In other words, Jesus is saying it's way tougher to forgive sins than it is to heal somebody. But just so you'll know I have the power to forgive sins, I'm going to tell this man to take his bed, rise up and walk. He said the healing is only so that you will understand that you have a problem not with a paralyzed man, but with your own wicked hearts. You see, that's everybody's problem. That's my problem and your problem. My problem is not all of my personal things that need a touch from the Lord. My problem is my sin. And it's your problem too. We we are sinners and we desperately need a savior. And immediately he rose up before them and took what he had been lying on and departed to his own house glorifying God. And they were all amazed that they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. It's like, whoa! Now, we don't know exactly what kind of problem this man had, but we do know that this silent criticism, this criticism from within, you can almost see their little twisted minds kind of rolling around. It's like, okay, we, we, we can't let him get away with this. We've got to figure out some way to condemn this. How do you condemn this particular action? Think about it for a, a second yourself. Jesus has just taken a man who was previously paralyzed and he is now well, and at the same time, corrected an even more grave problem, and that was his eternal destiny by forgiving his sins, and they're mad about it. Can I tell you, I've actually gotten letters from people saying that I don't save people correctly. And I will usually write something back, well, I'm I'm glad you noticed that because I don't ever save anybody. It's the gospel that saves It's Christ that saves. It's his grace that saves. It's faith that saves. It's not Pastor Jeff that saves. So if I did something wrong, blame that on me, but grace is free, amen? And so we often see this in people who want to be critical. They look at the process instead of the problem. They look at the process instead of the problem. Well, you don't do church right. You, you did this or you did that. And basically, Jesus is about to hit them with a grace bomb. He says to the man, your sins are forgiven. They're like, well, what about the temple? What about the feast days? What about the Sabbath? What about, what about, what about, what about, what about? 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. The answer to the what about is the cross of Christ. It's believing on the only begotten Son of God. The answer has never been religion. It's never been the temple. It's never been the feast days. All of those things were wonderful. They were even good. But they pointed towards the need for grace. They never pointed towards a completion. They pointed towards more of the same. And so Jesus simply looks at them and he says, look, which is easier to pretend to forgive the man's sins because they'd have no way of measuring that, right? This is one of the things that always amazes me when people come and they say, will you pray that my sins will be forgiven? I say, well, I can do that, but it's better coming from you. Amen? And here's why. Subjectively, I can't know whether your sins are actually forgiven or not. Only God knows that. So I just trust you to the Lord. You can trust yourself to the Lord. You can ask him yourself for that same forgiveness. You don't need me or a priest or anyone else to pray for you to have your sins forgiven. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Bible plainly teaches that it is not necessary for anyone to mediate that between you and God. You can do it yourself. Amen? So Jesus is basically saying this. Look, how would you know if his sins are forgiven anyway? But there is something you can know. If I heal this guy, then I'm God. Because that you don't believe I can do. Because you think I might be lying about his sins. Maybe I'm just deceiving you. So watch this. The guy gets up and walks and they're going, oh no. He just got up and walked. He healed him. I love the way Jesus works in this circumstance and situation. So the silent criticism, we've seen strange things. No, they saw something very plain and very simple. Jesus declared himself to be the son of God and then proved it by healing the man. And he said, and oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven by your faith. It wasn't strange at all. They just didn't like what they heard. Notice the second, the outspoken criticism. And it takes us all the way to verse five of chapter six. And after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, also Matthew, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow him, follow me. And so he left all and rose up and followed him. And then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And there were scribes and Pharisees, and they complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you don't have this passage underlined or highlighted or a star or an asterisk or something in the margins of your Bible because you're a tax collector and you're a sinner, Praise God that Jesus casts out no one. Amen? 
He's not looking for you to get perfect before you can be saved. He'll do the perfecting work in you by the Spirit. Once you become a child of God, Jesus always eats with tax collectors, publicans, and sinners. And Jesus answered and said, those, I love this. He just explains it to them. He says, okay, well, you're not getting the picture here. So those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so remember what he's just done. This is all in the same exact time. He's not like moving from thing to thing and waiting hours. These are one right after another. It's the reason we're covering all of this today. You see, the source of this hostility is really in three areas, and you can kind of look at it this way. He's going to deal with them with their prejudices next. He's like, "You, you guys think you have it all together, but you don't. And so he draws attention to this poor tax collector we know as Matthew, who will write his gospel, Matthew's gospel. Now imagine who he is. He's a tax collector. We would look at him in our day and time, he's an IRS agent. Now I'm pretty sure, I don't know how many of you have invited IRS agents arbitrarily to your house to have dinner with them, but Jesus did. They were hated during that day. They were agents of the Romans. This is the way that the Romans collected taxes. It was oppressive. It was arbitrary. It was capricious. And oh, by the way, the tax collectors themselves could make a buck off of anybody they wanted to. You didn't pay taxes. You didn't pass on the Via Maris. You were in trouble. And if you didn't pay your taxes, they'd just simply call the nearest Romans to come get you. So it was worse than what we go through when you get that phone call. Hopefully none of you have answered it, the scams that are going on right now because it's tax time. Hello, this is the IRS, and we have your information. Can you confirm it? Just so you know, church, the IRS will never, ever, ever, ever contact you via phone, ever. So if you get a phone call and somebody claims to be from the IRS, you can simply say, no, thank you, I already have one. They will do it in writing. But now imagine that the IRS does have the ability to stop you on the road. You're pulled over by the IRS. And you pull over to the side of the road. Uh, Sir, it looks like you haven't paid your taxes. That's what's going on. That's the power they had. They actually had power to arrest you. I love what Jesus says. He says he saw this publican. It's an interesting Greek word. It's teoemai. We get our, our word theater from it. It's as if Jesus was watching a play or watching a movie and he's watching the plot unfold and he saw the publican. He saw the tax collector. He looked right through the plot and said, him. That's how Jesus sees you. He sees through the plot of the enemy. He sees through your life. He sees through the stuff that you go through. And he's right there to go, you. I want you. I love you. I want you to know me. And the first words he speaks is, follow me. He doesn't say, hey, 
you know, clean up your life. Go to Bible college. You, know, you better join a church. Now he just says, follow me. Matthew, of course, does that. Notice that he says in this passage, too, that there were others. Interesting word, again, the original language in the Greek. He uses the word alos. Alos is others of the same kind, not others of a different kind, others of the same kind. It's as if Matthew was so well-connected in the tax-collecting community that there were other tax collectors. It's like an IRS convention. And Jesus is in the middle of the IRS convention. It's like he purposely takes the dregs of society, people that are, we would say, I'm not hanging out with them, especially not in April. He's going, I'm hanging out with them. This should tell you something about how much the Lord loves you. He intentionally went where other people would not go to save some, to offer grace, to help Matthew know what the love of God's like. Because you know what? He was never going to get that from the Jewish people. He was hated. And they had a reason to hate him. It wasn't like their, their, their dislike was unfounded. He was not, you know, one of those guys in society. It's like, you know, it's that guy that lives on the corner that does that, you know, kind of thing. That's where Jesus goes. And we ought to be praising the Lord for it, amen? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the godly, the ungodly. See, we should see ourselves in these passages. You see, the critics were the religious people. Their tactics, their prejudices, their practices. Notice what it says next. Verse 33, pick this up. And then he said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often? So they're speaking now to Jesus. It's like you're going to have publicans and blah. You know, it's like they didn't get there in that space. They just got to complain about everything. It's like publicans. You're going to heal this guy, which is on the Sabbath. You're going to declare yourself to be God. Now you're going to hang out with publicans and sinners. Matthew throws a party and you attend it. It's like, what in the world is wrong with you? Verse 33. And then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Like, yeah, yeah. You can almost hear them. It's like they go from problem to problem to problem to problem. It's just like everything's wrong with everyone except them. They have a very tiny club, and it's not very pleasant to join it. And he said to them, can you make friends of the bridegroom at the fast while and make friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now imagine this. How many of you have been to a wedding reception? How many of you in the middle of a wedding reception go, that's all right, I won't eat, I'm fasting? <laughs> no! It's an inappropriate place for you to announce the fact that you're devotionally before the Lord fasting. You just eat, go fast on another day. Amen? It's not appropriate. 
You would never do that. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Now, I want you to notice what he says next. Please check this out. And then he spoke a parable to them. Would you please underline that? Because I've had countless people try and use this passage as Jesus affirming the social consumption of alcohol. It's a parable. A parable is a story which the actual intent is not the intent. Amen? And so what he's saying here is not, hey, go drink a bunch of booze. No one puts a piece of a new garment and an old one together. And likewise, the new makes a tear, and also that piece will be taken out because it does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else a new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk the old wine, immediately desires the new, for he says the old is better. It's a parable. It's a parable. Never use a parable as your proof text for some behavior. It's poor exegesis. He's having fellowship with publicans and sinners. He's sitting with them. So he takes them first to the workshop. He says, let's talk about this. If you take a piece of new cloth, put it on an old garment, you wash them, guess what happens? It tears the stitching out of it. You have to take the new cloth, you have to wash it, get it dirty, and make sure that it's ready to be sewn on this old garment. Otherwise, it will destroy both of them. He uses that example first. He says, look, he's basically saying, look, the Old Testament and Judaism was the old. You, you can't mix it with the new. This is a new thing. I'm teaching you about grace. This is not about the law. He's teaching them a parable. And then he takes them to the wine cellar. He says, look, let's talk about this. During that day and time, if you harvested grapes, you couldn't leave a bunch of grapes laying around. There's no refrigeration, amen? Any of you bought fresh grapes at, say, Trader Joe's? The organic fresh grapes. How long do they last on your counter? A couple of days at the very most? You have spent an entire year to get a grape harvest, Right? So what do you do if you have all your grapes become ripe in the same week? You press them into juice, and then you let them ferment because that is the only way you are going to get to keep the produce of your vineyards, either that or raisins. You've got two choices. <laughs> That's it. And so for the juice, they pressed it, turned it into wine. They often mixed it with water, and in mixing it with water, it was also a type of sanitizing agent for what was poor water quality as well. And so here in this story, Jesus is simply teaching them a very simple thing. He says, look, if you take new grape juice that is not fermented yet and you put it inside of an old wineskin, an old wineskin is brittle. It's got cracks in it. And if it starts to ferment in there, you're going to blow up the bag and you're going to lose the wine. He's talking about the new covenant. 
He's saying, look, you can't take the old wineskin of Judaism and take the new wine of grace and put it inside of it because the two can't coexist. One is God's unmerited favor. The other is rules and regulations. But he's using this process every one of them would be familiar with simply as a way for them to understand it. He's saying, so you put the new wine in a new wineskin, that way it's preserved. He's saying, look, these things are grace things. These things are faith things. These things are not law things. And so he finishes with this and will finish with this. And now it happened, chapter 6, verse 1, because it's another example of the same principle. On the second Sabbath, after the first, so it's another Sabbath, that he went through the grain fields and his disciples, ah, horror of horrors, plucked heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees rose up in righteous indignation. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them and said, Have you not even read this? What did David do when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and took and ate the showbread and also gave it to some of those who were with him, which is not lawful for any to do but the priests. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. So he's already said the Son of Man can forgive sin. And he said, oh, by the way, the Sabbath rest, that's me. He's sharing with them, look, you, you need to know something here. Now, it's interesting. If you read Exodus 31, you'll find out that the Jewish people were giving, given the Sabbath themselves as a perpetual way for them to worship the Lord. And it wasn't even given to the church. That's why Jesus never repeats the Sabbath command in all of the New Testament. It wasn't like he said to the church, he said, keep the Sabbath. He said, I am your Sabbath. I'm your Sabbath. I'm your rest. You see, religion loves rules and religion loves regulations. They were going by pretense. This horrific violation of the Sabbath. They're like, oh, I can't believe it. It's mind-boggling. When you, when you look at what's actually going on here, Jesus is saying, look, you, you might want to read your Bible. Because they're in Leviticus 19, guess what it says? It's perfectly acceptable for you. Matter of fact, the children of Israel were commanded to leave the margins of their field unharvested so people could specifically go glean if they were poor. David, 1 Samuel, goes in and they're in child. He's 21. As he goes in and he, he's, he's hungry, his men are hungry, he goes into the temple and eats the showbread. The children of Israel were being set up. Look, the law can't save you. All of these things were supposed to, the bread in the temple was supposed to point to the bread of life, Jesus, amen? The water poured out on the steps of the temple was to point to the water of life, Jesus, amen? 
the giant menorah in the temple was supposed to point to the light of the word, which was Jesus, amen? So in that sense, the whole thing was to point them to Christ and they missed it. Religion loves rules and regulations. It loves rat races, quite honestly. Likes to run around in circles. It's crazy. When you look at what the rabbis had done in this period of time, if you were to take a Sabbath journey, for instance, and I'll wrap this up pretty quickly. A Sabbath journey was supposed to be a thousand paces. But here's what the rabbis said. If the day before you walk a thousand paces and you take a meal and you put the meal down, then you go back to your original dwelling place, that place becomes your home. So on a Sabbath day, you can go to where you left the food and you can go another thousand paces. Does that sound like God? Kind of sounds like cheating, doesn't it? But they made up a rule for that. So now your house is a thousand yards further away than it originally was. A burden was considered a dried fig. And so if you had a dried fig in your hand and you got to the end of the thousand paces and you had a dried fig, you had to drop the figs, which were your food, to pick up the food which you cheated on to walk another thousand paces. This is what the law does. It looks to rules and regulations to try and regulate that which only grace can solve. You ladies, you're going to really hate this one. On Sabbath day, you are not allowed to look in a mirror because you might see a gray hair and pluck it out, and that was working. Look at all the stuff we do now in the morning. I look in the mirror any day, and it's like, ooh, that's not good. And so they're saying, as they rub this, they're working by rubbing the husk off of wheat. They're gleaning and they're harvesting. They're doing all this stuff. And Jesus is just simply saying, stop it. Stop it. I am your Sabbath rest. This is ridiculous. There's no end to the rules that you can make up. You'll never rest that way. Rest in me. So don't let a little bit of criticism get to you, amen? You're gonna get it as a child of God. Just rest that Jesus alone is our Sabbath. He's the one that, that comes into our lives and by grace and through faith enables us to live lives that would otherwise be impossible by the law. If two of us get together and we come up with a bunch of rules and how church is supposed to be, one of us is going to break the other's rules. Amen? That's the way it'll go down. It's like, no, I don't think it's that way. Just rest. Trust him. Whatever day of the week you worship on, we're worshiping on Sunday. By the way, tomorrow night, the married couples will worship on Monday, and then the men and the ladies will worship on Tuesday and some Spanish folks will get together on Wednesday and then we'll have another worship service on Thursday and the bridge will get together on Friday and on Saturday, I think we have forerunners for Christ worshiping over in Wilson Park and then we'll be back here again. So worship on every day, amen? Just worship and rest. Rest in his grace and walk in him, amen? Would you stand with me?
Thanks for your patience with a rather long passage of scripture, but it's all in the same context. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And Lord, we would pray that those of us that are prone to be critical, Lord, prone to be fault finders, Lord, those that lean on the law and not on your grace, Lord, your law was a tutor, Paul said, a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It was never intended to save us or keep us. Lord, it is your standard, and we relish in it, but we keep it only by grace through faith. And we pray that you'd help us to be grace-filled Sabbath keepers, Lord, who rest in you always on every day, and who meet together often to seek your face, and who get away occasionally to be personally with you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you while we were publicans and sinners and Pharisees and heretics and Lord, prostitutes and drug addicts. Lord, thieves and liars that you stepped into our lives by your marvelous grace and saved us. We bless you. We praise you. And God's people all said, Amen. Thanks for listening. And we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.